So you will need your, your Bible. If you have your sword, take it out. Uh, probably more for, from my laziness more than anything else, but I had about five or six slides, and uh, I just didn't bring my laptop. I didn't know if Jimmy brought his, but nonetheless, it will be effective even without it. It will be good for us. I want to go back to Hebrews. Appreciate Sean reading from chapter 5 and verses 9 and 10. We, uh, we kicked off this series three weeks ago. It was a study, a part of our study series on hard sayings or hard lessons or things that are hard to hear. And um, in verses 9 and 10 and then continuing into verse 11 there in Hebrews chapter 5, the writer says there, are, there is much more that we want to share with you about this Jesus and his uh, priesthood after the order of Melchizedek, his high priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. But you're not ready to hear it because you're dull of hearing. And then he, uh, he proceeds on from there. Well, I want to backtrack and I want to talk about what we reviewed already just very briefly. And then we're going to pick up at five and we're going to do, uh, we'll do a lot of reading from five, six, and seven. And my theme tonight and closing out this series from Hebrews is going to be Jesus, the superior high priest. If you remember, we said that the, the theme of Hebrews and what the Hebrews writer was trying to get across, first of all, it was written to Christians. And it was written as an encouragement or an admonishment to hold on to that which they knew, to hold fast. Hebrews chapter 11, we're probably all very familiar with. We call it the, um, the Faith Hall of Fame, and so it's probably aptly fitting because in chapter 11, it lists all those who held on to the Word of God and were faithful until the very end through many, many hardships and challenges. And the Hebrew Christians were going through challenges and persecutions and just the difficulties of the life at their time, but the difficulties of life upon earth and the things that we face and the stresses that come along with it. And the theme was to hold fast, hold on to that faith, and don't give it up. Why? Because Christ is superior. It started in chapter 1, and we said that Christ is superior because of who he is. Christ is superior because he is the only begotten son. He was a direct uh, begotten son of God, the only one. There would never be another, not like him, and that could hold that title. He was superior because he was God. He was God in the flesh, 100% man, 100% God. We looked in chapter 1 that he was superior because he was aligned with God. He was of the same mind he was in the beginning. He was eternal, and he was equal with God. He was superior because he is the giver of life. He's the creator of all things. Um, God ascribed that, that description to him, the Hebrews writer, and the Holy Spirit made sure that it was recorded there for us. And also we see other verses that would, sort of, that would state the fact that Jesus was the creator of all things that are on earth. I think it's aptly said that, um, I shared this I think a couple of weeks ago maybe, but God had the purpose and the design behind the creation. It was Christ who um, who created all things. It was the Holy Spirit who put all things in order, all after the plan of the Godhead collectively. So Christ was superior because he was creator of all things. We looked in chapter 1, he's superior because he's the sustainer of all things. It is in him that there is life and all things and all things sustain. 
He is superior because he illuminates the word of God. And it is Christ's teaching and Christ's preaching and Christ's life that we use as a pattern for ourselves. Because he was the only begotten son. He was the father in the flesh. He is our savior. And he is the only one in which salvation is available. And so that was chapter one. We moved into chapter two. And um, chapter two then was that Christ is superior to the angels. He had a superior message because of who he was. So unlike any other messenger, whether it was a celestial being, angels, or whether it was messengers upon earth, angels, he was superior. His message is superior because it was the direct word and voice of God. He was illuminating the word of God. He was superior to those created beings because he isn't created. He is eternal. So those angels who were celestial beings and who were created beings, he was greater than. And so he's superior. He's superior. In chapter 3 then, um, it was the first time in chapter 3, in Hebrews anyway, that we see him ascribed as the high priest. And we see that in the very first verse. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, even Christ Jesus. So he is described there as the high priest. We'll see it again in chapter 4. We'll see it in chapter 5. And we see it more extensively in chapter 7. Um, really through all the way through chapter 10. But chapter 7 is the thrust as Jesus Christ as the superior high priest. In, um, in chapter 3, we see superiority. Jesus is superior over Moses and over men. Now, Moses was uh, very faithful, and that is called out. And Moses, as a part of the household, that is part of God's family, was faithful unto God. And his faith was imputed to him for righteousness. Moses later listed in chapter 11 in Faith's Hall of Fame. But Christ is greater. He's superior. Why? Because... He's not a part of the house. He built the house. He is the creator um, of the house. He is the establishment of the church as God the Father had willed. And so Christ is superior over Moses and above any man, any prophet that had come before. Chapter 4 then, um, chapter 4 is more of an admonishment and an encouragement than laying out a specific uh, priority or specific individual that he is superior to but in chapter 4 then it was reminding now knowing and seeing all these things therefore we ought to give serious heed and um, time and, and thought to God's word because the gospel preached there this gospel preached to them the gospel preached to us is the word of God, it is the illumination of God's word, it is the words of Christ, and it is those things that will, uh, that lead to salvation and sustain us. And then we move into chapter 5, and that's where I want to pick up, we continue to see the, uh, the evolution, I'm sorry, I told you in chapter 4, uh, he is alluded to again as the high priest. what I get for not, uh, not jotting. It is the value of having my slide in front of me. Verse 15. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. There's a distinction there. A good distinction. So I'm glad we found that and read it. Not only again is he proclaimed as the high priest, 
the recognition is there, hey, you, you need to recognize he's a superior high priest because he has faced the afflictions that we face. But unlike any other high priest, he has faced them without sin. And so he is already the superior high priest just in that regard. All right, well, let's pick up at chapter 5. What I propose I want to do, I want to read through chapter 5. And then I want to talk about what we know about high priests. We touched upon these three weeks ago, but we're going to circle back and uh, we'll move through chapter 5 and get into chapter 7. For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. Who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way? For that he himself also is compassed with infirmity. And by reason thereof he ought, as for the people, so as for himself to offer for sins. And no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made a high priest, but he that said unto him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. As he saith also in another place, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation and all them that obey him called of God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, that is hard to understand for you or put in a way that you understand it, seeing that you are dull of hearing. For when the time come that you ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again, which be the principles, I'm sorry, which be the first principles of the oracles of God and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong drink. For everyone that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are full of age. Even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. So I would first have you note and recognize. Let's think about what we know or let's review what we know about the office of the high priest. And the very first thing we see in the first verse of chapter 5 is that the office of high priest is ordained by God. So those men put into those positions were anointed and they were ordained um, and assigned by God. It wasn't a popularity contest. Um, this was a, was a carefully given office. We see that Hebrews 5.1, for every high priest taken from men is ordained for men in the things pertaining to God. If you go back to Leviticus 21, in verse 10, you'll see that um, that same note. Matter of fact, we got time. Let's go ahead and do it. Leviticus 21 and verse 10. And he that is the high priest among his brethren, whom whose head the anointing oil was poured, and that is consecrated, would be aptly um, defined as ordained. To put on the garment shall not uncover his head nor rend his clothes. So the high priest was ordained by God, put in place and instituted by God. Second thing that we need to remember and know about the high priest is that they served as the authority of God. 
We, uh, we saw in Exodus 28, and we have studied this recently. We don't have to turn back there. But it was the high priest and the high priest only who could wear the Urim, or the Urim, however you want to pronounce that, the Urim and the Thummim. It was only the high priest that had that ability to wear that. And we see in Numbers 27 and 21 where that comes into play. And people were told to go to the high priest. And using the Urim and the Thummim, it was the high priest who, knowing God's word or God's decision, um, would tell them when to go out and when to come in. And when he told them to go out, they go out. When he told them to come in, they come in. And so we see the application in that the, uh, the high priest was the authority of God's word. So they were the one upon when there was a, a matter of dispute or a question as to what is God's will that the people would turn to for clarification. Third thing we need to remember and note is that the high priest offered sacrifice for himself and for the people. Leviticus 16 I won't go there for the sake of time, but the entirety of Leviticus 16, all of those verses are very detailed about the sacrifice of the bullocks and the goats and the scapegoat and how they were supposed to be used and how they were to be applied. But of note there is that the high priest was giving sacrifice for themselves and then for the people. So the high priest had to atone for the sins of himself and those shortcomings and Things that he would have uh, been deficient in in order to be able to serve in that office. We also see that in Numbers 29. Those are parallel verses. So if you want to jot those down, Leviticus 16 and Numbers 29 are the instructions for the sacrifices. And it was the high priest, his role to, uh, to offer that atonement. And on the Day of Atonement, I'm sorry, I should have pointed out that there was a, a specific time and place uh, of when that particular sacrifice was to be given on the Day of Atonement. And then fourth, we should make note and remember that it was the high priest and the high priest alone who had access to the holiest of holy. He was the one and only that had access to the inner um, part of the tabernacle and into the holiest of holies. And there was very detailed instructions as to how he could approach it, how he had to be dressed, how he had to be prepared, the sacrifices that had had to have been done. But he alone had the ability to go and make that intercession for the people. Any other who tried to access the holiest of holy, the Bible is very clear, would have suffered death and punishment as a result. You can find those, by the way, again, Leviticus 16. And then if you go back to Hebrews, you'll see it in Hebrews 9 verse 7 where it says but into the second went the high priest alone once every year not without blood which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people so it was the high priest alone who had that ability to make intercession for the people in the holiest of holies those are going to be important as we consider the importance of Jesus as the high priest the superior high priest uh, but we need to understand or look a little bit about what it means that Jesus was a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. We don't hear a lot about Mel Melchizedek. We see um, an account of Melchizedek in Genesis 14, which is 18, 19, 23 short verses. We see more of him in Hebrews 7, which we're going to turn to in a moment. And we see a very brief reference of him in um, Psalm 110. And then we see... Some one or two verses throughout the Bible additional. But 
the, the bulk of what we know about Melchizedek comes from Hebrews, um, but we'll come back to that. Let's go back to Genesis 14, and let's see what we see about Melchizedek back in Genesis 14. And why this is important, why the Holy Spirit called out that Jesus was a high priest, the superior high priest, after the order of Melchizedek. If you go to Genesis 14, we're going to pick up at verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram, Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand. And he gave him tithes of all. That's pretty short. That's the extent of what we know about Melchizedek, other than Hebrews. Thank goodness Hebrews is there to illuminate a little bit more, but not a whole lot more. Reminder of what's going on here in Genesis 14. Nine kings of earth went to, went to battle together. It was a rebellion against, I can't pronounce that name to save me. Um, it was a rebellion against the king of Elam. If I had to guess for you, it is Shedeloramar, or Shedeloramare, king of Elam. I'm just going to say king of Elam. Anyway, it was a rebellion against the king of Edom. He had four other kings that um, th those kings and their people sided with him. And then five kings and their people sided on the other side. And they were battling it out. And in the, in the process of all that battle and the result... Um, the, the nation of Sodom was overtaken. And in that overtaking of Sodom, Lot was taken captive and all the things that Lot possessed. Lot would have been Abraham's um, nephew. It would have been his brother's son. And so those survivors of that battle and of that spoil came to Abram or Abraham to let him know that Lot has been taken captive. And Abram went to his rescue. And the account that we see um, there and on, Abram came upon them and he did take back Lot by force, him and his men. And as they took back Lot, those kings that were the possessors, those who had taken him, met Abram um, I guess on the on the battlefield at the at the end of the battle there, and they are asking of Abram, take everything that you want, take back Lot, but let's let's be finished with this. And it's actually Abraham who says, I'm not going to take anything of yours. I'm paraphrasing for him, but I'm not taking anything of yours, lest you say you made Abraham great. But I am taking back Lot, and then he gives to two of his. Um, Two of his servants, two of the individuals that were fighting of him, he said, of their household, you let them take of the spoils. But he was there for um, the salvation, I guess, or the recovery of, of Lot. And um, then we see as Abraham is, is returning from there that this Melchizedek comes out to meet him. And that brings us back to where we were in verse 18. We first see what's significant of note. Well, I guess what's first of significant to note is this is before the establishment of the Israelite nation. It would be another 400, 500 years before the establishment of the Israelite nation. 
So it would have been four or five hundred years before the establishment of the Levitical priesthood. And yet here's a man who is titled as a priest, a priest of God. But there's also an interesting distinction in verse 18 is that he is the king of Salem. So not only is he a high priest, but he is a king. And that's going to be significant to understanding Christ um, who came after the order of Melchizedek. So Melchizedek had a royal priesthood in that he was both king and he was a priest. Now, in earthly terms, if we were to think that through, the king would have had ultimate um, authority and subjugation. So he would have ruled his nation and his land. High priest would have fit in underneath him. In this case, as both the high priest and the king, he had all and ultimate authority. Second thing that we see here in, uh, in the very next verse, in 19, is that Abraham blessed, I'm sorry, another way around, is that he blessed Abraham. Melchizedek came bearing bread and things to refresh and sustain Abraham, and then he blessed him. He offered a blessing both to him and he offered a blessing unto God. It's important because, um, and Hebrews will bear this out for it, it's not just our thoughts or not just us understanding a little bit about history and about the way man, I guess, set up authority, but the one who was bestowing the blessing was the greater. And so we see in this case that as the bestower, Melchizedek giving unto Abraham, he had authority over Abraham. He was he was greater. Hebrews would describe it as the, the greater giving to the to the lesser. It's important because that will be a defining distinction as well as we think about Christ as the superior high priest. And then lastly, I would point out in verse 20 is that Abraham blessed Melchizedek by paying him tithes. So this man was a high priest of God. He blessed Abraham, and then Abraham paid tithes to him. So there's no doubt that he was, in fact, a high priest before the establishment of the Levitical priesthood. So he was not of the lineage of uh, the tribe of Levi, which we will see ascribed in Exodus as only those who could be priests. All right. Let's go back now to Hebrews 5. Let's do some survey of things that are, um, it's all important, but let's do a survey of those things that are relevant to our lesson here tonight. Um, we already pointed out verse 1, that Jesus is um, a high priest and he is ordained of God, because all priests are ordained of God. But lest we um, need further clarification or assurance of that, if we drop down to verse 5, so also Christ glorified not himself to be made high priest, but that he that said unto him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. Again, it was God who established him in the office of high priest. If you continue on there, verse 6, as he saith also in another place, when he references another place, Psalm 110 this is a quote from Psalm 110. As he saith in another place, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So Christ 
is ordained of God to this position. That's important for us to note. Um, it's important for us to drop down there again to where we started our conversation and make just a few points on those who were dull, dull of hearing. I guess it's important to go to verse 10 where again we see reference. So this is the fourth time in Hebrews that he is called the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Fourth time he's called the high priest. Second time he's called high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Not counting the prophecy in Psalm 110, which um, is quoted up in verse 6. But in 11 and 12 and 13, and then carrying into the first few verses of chapter 6. The, the writer of Hebrews, again writing to Christians, says there's so much more that I want to explain to you about the superiority of Jesus because he comes after the order of Melchizedek but you're not ready to hear it because you're dull of hearing. There's significant learning there for us, for them and for us who are reading this now thousands of years later, that we can't be dull of hearing. What that means is they were slothful in their development and their maturity. That's not my words. We'll see it in Hebrews 6 and 7. They had sat back and become relaxed. Now, that, that may not just be slothfulness because they just didn't want to do it. They could be caught up in all the trials and afflictions and the challenges. And there were those trying to get them to move back to the old law. There were those per persecuting them because of what they believed. There was the fact that as they believed, in many cases, they, they had, to, had to leave or they were forced out of their families and their livelihoods and their jobs. And there could be a lot of reasons and things that are weighing upon them that have kept them from doing what they should be doing. And that is clinging to this faith and growing in it. Because they ought to be the, to the point where they are teaching others and showing others what it meant to be a Christian and why they were Christians and why Jesus was superior. But they're having to learn the ABCs again. They're having to build that foundation that the writer says ought to already be there. You ought to be ready to teach this but you're having to reinforce this to yourself. All right, chapter 6. I'm going to read through the first 12 verses. I'll leave the rest to you, but for the purpose of our lesson, I want to make some notes out of the first 12 verses. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection, completeness, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, and of laying on of hands, and of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. This we will do if God forbid, if God permit. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened, and have tasted of the heavenly gift, and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost, and have tasted the good word of God, and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away, to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh, and put him, on, put him to an open shame. For the earth which drinketh in the rain that cometh oft upon it, and bringeth forth herbs, meet for them by whom it was dressed, receiveth blessing from God. But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected, and is nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burned. But, beloved, we are persuaded better things of you, and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, 
which ye have showed toward his name, and that ye have ministered to the saints, and to do and do minister. And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of the hope until the end, that ye be not slothful, but followers of them through faith and patience, through them who through faith and patience inherit the promise. So there's that thrust of Hebrews, hold fast, right? That in the in the last three verses that we read there. But what I first want to draw out and, and continue on was that point we made at the close there of chapter five. They were building that foundation still when they ought to be teachers. And it's time to move past whether or not there is a resurrection. It's time to move past um, whether or not we believe in, in Jesus and whether or not we believe God and that we believe Jesus' statement as the Son of God. It's past time to move past the teachings of baptism. It's past time to move past the laying on of hands and what that meant and why it was given. It's time to move on past the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. You already know those things. Those foundations are, ought to be already established. It's time to grow and mature and move forward to completeness. And you ought to be cheap teachers. You ought to be taking of meat. There's a little bit of admonishment there from the Hebrews writer. Yes, the thrust is Christ is superior. Yes, the thrust is be faithful and hold to that faith. But before he could continue on here in chapter 7, he had to address the fact that it's time for you to grow up in Christ. And that ought to be a lesson that stands out for us as well. I also want to pull, point out in verses, well, let's go, let's take care of four through six, first of all, in that it's impossible for those who were enlightened, that is, again, he's writing to Christians, so those who would have accepted Christ and put on Christ, when he is saying it is impossible for them to, who fall away, those who would convert back either to the old law or who would give up Christ and would give up those things that they had learned. He is not saying it is impossible to repent. What he is saying is there is nothing else coming. So if you're going to crucify Christ again, if you're just going to give him up and just be ashamed of the fact that you're a Christian and you're going to deny who he is, there's nothing else to come. That's the message of 4 through 6. Not that you can't come back. But that those who give it up, there's nothing else to hope for. There's not a latter-day revelation coming. There's no additional signs. There's no additional warnings. So it's time to do whatever they need to do to lay that foundation and make it strong. But it's time to move on and to grow toward completeness, perfection. That is to continue to mature in their walk and their faith and then to hold fast to it. And then 7 through 12, where we stopped, it's important to note, or at least I wanted to pull out, point out, that there must have been work to do. There wasn't work to do. Why in the world? Well, first of all, why did I need to write a whole lot of, of chapter 6? Could have shrank it considerably. But when he goes into that which um, is upon the earth and how it's replenished, we all understand God, God uh, replenishes and it rains upon the just and the unjust, right? We all reap the benefits of this hospitable planet and all have the ability to make a living and sustain ourselves and or 
even above and beyond that which is needed to sustain us. But those who prosper will be those who obey God and are diligent in their walk with Him. But those who don't are those who are compared to bearing thorns, and they will be rejected. And their end is not salvation. And these are not my words. I'm appropriating to you and reading to you what the scripture says. They will be burned. But beloved, you're persuaded better things. We're persuaded better things of you. You know the truth and you have accepted. Remember, written to Christians. God's not unrighteous in remembering the, the labor of love and the things which you do. If there is nothing you can do to earn salvation, then the Hebrew writer is confusing a lot of folks here. God is not the author of confusion. So if he's not the author of confusion, we have to contend with, and we have to reason what we get out of 7 through 12. There must be works for me to do, or verse 10 makes no sense. For God is not unrighteous to, to forget your work and labor of love. That is, God will remember those things which you do and whether or not we are faithful unto him. And that you continue on ministering, that you're still doing so, it says at the end. You do minister. We desire of every one of you that you show diligence to the full assurance of your hope. How can I know that I have hope? Can I know that I have hope? We read it this morning. It was on the screen. You don't have to guess. You might have made that mistake, that statement early in your Christian walk. Maybe after tonight you won't make that statement again. But if someone were to ask you, are you going to heaven? You ought to be able to say yes or no. You ought to be able to say yes or no. Because we, we have the ability to know if we have salvation or where we don't, whether we don't. That answer shouldn't be, I hope so. I do have hope. I have hope through Christ. But I'm assured I have a home in heaven if I am faithful unto him. So be sure. Maybe that will be my plea as we close out here. I want to pick up at chapter 7, and then I'm going to circle back to my notes, and we'll, we'll begin our close here shortly. Chapter 7, let me just read through it. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace, Without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth the priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. And verily they that are of the sons of Levi, who receive the office of the priesthood, have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law, that is, of their brethren, though they come out of the loins of Abraham. But he whose descent is not counted from them received tithes of Abraham and blessed him that he had the promises. And, with, and without all contradiction, the less is blessed of the better. And here men that die receive tithes, but there he receiveth them 
of whom it is witness that he liveth. And as I may so say, Levi also, who received tithes, paid tithes in Abraham. For he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, what further need was there that here, let me back up. If therefore per perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, what further need was there that another priest should rise up after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken pertaineth to another tribe, of which no man have gave attendance at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. And it is yet far more evident, for that after the similitude of Melchizedek there arise another priest, who is made not after the law of carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. For he testifieth, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before the weakness and unprofitable thereof. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh unto God. Inasmuch as not without an oath he was made priest. But this with an oath by him that saith unto him, The Lord swear and will not repent, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. And they truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. For such a high priest became us who is holy harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. For the law maketh men high priests which have infirmity, but the word of the oath which was since the law maketh the son who is consecrated forevermore. All right. Starts out in chapter 7 with some of the things we already looked at in Genesis 14. Melchizedek, king of Salem, right? We, we see that correlation and reaffirmation. Um, we see that when he met him, Abraham gave him a tenth part of all. Abraham paid tithes unto him. He is defined as not only king of Salem, but the king of peace and the king of righteousness. Those are just descriptors of his title as high priest. And then in verse 3, we need to consider this for a moment. And remember, now is the comparison of Jesus and Melchizedek. What, what is it that Melchizedek is a type of Christ? And how is it that Christ is after the order of Melchizedek? Melchizedek was without father, without mother, and without descent. That doesn't mean I don't teach anyway because I can't prove it substantially anywhere else. And I don't have any other verses to refer back that he was miraculously placed here um, outside of the normal biological order of things that we all understand. But, but what is 
being referred to here by the Hebrews writer is we don't have record of where Melchizedek came from. We don't know what his lineage was. We don't know who his father and mother is. The, the thrust of what the Hebrew writer is saying is it's not important. Where he came from was not important. What we do know is he is not of the lineage of Levi because the Levitical priesthood hasn't been established yet. It's not important to his father and mother and what his lineage was because his office or his appointment didn't come from his genealogy. It came from his ordination from God. He lived prior to the Israelite nation. We made that point already. He's not of the tribe of Levi. We made that point. Um, both Melchizedek and Christ are described as kings. Melchizedek as the king of Salem and Christ as the king of, um, of, of the church and of the kingdom. Those, those being synonymous um, and one and the same thing. Um, their priesthood was not just held to Israel. That's distinct for us to make note of as well. Melchizedek wasn't the high priest of Israel like the Levite priest would have been. He's a high priest after the order of God, so he was a high priest for, for all those of his nation and other nations. There's no prescription of a, a set group of people of which he was the high priest. That's important as well because it's the same as same for Christ. He is the king of the church, yes. He is our high priests who are obedient to him, yes. But all have access to him, both Jews and Gentiles. And so after the order of Melchizedek, he wasn't um, he wasn't limited into those whom he represented. Um, we talked about the ordination not being from uh, familial lineages, and it wasn't genealogy that was of importance here. But they both came from outside of the Levitical priesthood. That's the first 12 verses there, and what is being made uh, clear there. Also, he makes a statement unto them, because, because Christ is, and Christ is superior to all other high priests, there, there came a need. For the change of the commandment and the change of the law. Why? Because the fulfillment is here. The promise was here. Christ was here. Christ had died, right? The church had been established. The old law had passed away. Again, this is reference, assurance, exhortation, however you want to put it, not to go back to the old law because Christ is superior. The law had to change because it was fulfilled. And now the new covenant is in place. So how is it that Christ is after the order of Melchizedek? Let me restate it all. Christ was not after the lineage of uh, the tribe of Levi. He is of the tribe of Judah. And the writer makes sure to call that out here. He was not limited in scope to those whom he represented. He still fulfilled the office to um, be an intercessor or to make pleas for the people. He still made sacrifice for the people. But his sacrifice was once and done. He still, uh, or he was ordained by God, and so he, he fulfilled all those things just as Melchizedek did, but he was different and distinct from all other high priests. He's greater than Melchizedek. 
And that Melchizedek, just like those Levitical priests, had to make atonement for himself and for the people. He had to make intercession for himself and for the people. And in this case, he's greater than Melchizedek because there is none greater. But just as we saw Melchizedek bless Abraham, Christ blesses us in that he gives us the opportunity to have hope and to have salvation. That's already been given. But there is acceptance. It has to be received. We'll close with that here in a moment. But Christ is superior as the high priest because he has the greatest genealogy. So you think about the order of Melchizedek and the fact that he wasn't after the Levitical lineage, Christ was still superior because his genealogy comes directly from the Father. He's the only begotten Son. It goes all the way back to chapter 1. The Hebrews writer is restating that here. This, is, this was some of that that the Hebrew writer is saying, it's going to be a little hard for you to understand or me to put in words in a way that you understand because you're still, you're still trying to take of meat. Christ has a superior lineage because he is the Son of God, the only begotten Son of God. He is the superior high priest because he is aligned with God. When he makes intercession on your behalf, he knows that which you have need of. And he pleads before the Father on your behalf. The Bible also tells us that the Holy Spirit makes intercession or makes, I'm sorry, makes groanings for us when we don't know that which we should pray for. But it's why we often say in our invitation that um, for those of you who are children of God and have fallen away and need to repent and to come back, you have an intercessor, and that's coming directly from verse 25, that is waiting there to be your advocate. And when I say he pleads before the Father, I don't want to ascribe that I know the mind of God, but it's not that Christ has to convince the Father. I rather believe it's more of a statement, and I don't have the scripture in front of me, but it's more of a statement that he assures the Father, this is one of ours. He is superior, the superior high priest, because he has an everlasting kingdom. The, the kingship of Melchizedek would fall. The kingship of all kings of the world will fall. But Christ's kingdom, which is the church, will never fail. And so he is the superior high priest because that royal priesthood and the fact that he is both a king and a high priest will never fail. Not until the time that all things have been put under his feet. And then he'll turn it over to the Father. And then it doesn't really fail. It's just that he has transferred um, that authority and that praise over to the Father. And he hands the church over. He takes us all home to be with him. And I guess final, we've already stated it, but I'm going to wrap it in this. And then I think I want to move to just one or two more scriptures here in verse 8 or 9. But he had no <laughs> sin of his own. So he didn't have to make atonement for his sins. His sacrifice was the sacrifice. It was the one and done. And there was no need for a high priest to rise up after him. 
verse 11 said, if the law were able to make perfect, so if the Levitical priesthood was, was able to uh, atone for sins in that it didn't just carry them forward until the death of Christ, if the Levitical priesthood was sufficient, there was no reason to raise up another after the order of Melchizedek. We could have just continued on with the Levitical priesthood. That is not the case. The prophecy has been fulfilled. The ultimate sacrifice has been made. That which was put in place from the foundation of the world, God's plan has come to fruition. Christ died for the salvation of all who would come unto him and be obedient unto him. He was that better testament, that better covenant referenced in verse 22. So he made that sacrifice once and for all. I'll close with chapter 8 and maybe just verse 1. Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have a high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. There is no other high priest that had access to heaven, has access to heaven like Christ does. That's the sum of it, the Hebrew writer says. Jesus is superior. He is superior to Abraham. He is superior to Moses. He is superior to men. He is superior to the old law. He is superior to the angels, the messengers. He is superior to celestial beings. He is superior to all created beings. Christ is superior. Hold fast to that faith. Faith, cling to it. Strive to grow and mature in your relationship with Christ and your servitude to Christ and to God. Chapters 9 and 10 would continue on with a little bit of continuation of Christ as the superior high priest. But then it would move into the encouragement of remaining faithful. And gets into Hebrews 11 in the Hall of Fame. Well, here's my close. That is the sum of it. We have a high priest that is sitting right on the right hand of God. And he is ready ready, ready to make intercession for you. Now, if you are a child of God, you have already accepted Christ and have put on Christ as the Hebrews had that this had been written to. The admonition to you is grow and mature. Know that your high priest is superior. Know that Christ is superior. Know that Christianity is superior. And hold fast to that. Study to show thyself approved those works God is not unrighteous in overlooking that in other words God knows what you're doing he knows if you're hot or cold which we studied last week continue to grow and mature in Christ if you're not yet in Christ Hebrews also made clear through those first eight chapters that we've looked at and surveyed now that it was a necessity to be Christian it was a necessity to have accepted Christ. And there is a pattern and a plan that God has put into place. If there isn't, why in the world do he spend so much time assuring people that Christ was superior? 
And if there isn't, is not a very particular process of salvation, why, as we studied last week, was it so important to make clear the distinction that this was written to Christians and what that meant and who Christ was? And then why did the apostles over and over and over again document for us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, those things which we must do to be faithful and obedient. Why the admonition to hold tight to your faith? If all I have to do is believe in Jesus, I've already done that. How in the world could I fall away? How is it that I would struggle to come back to God? Because I, I, I surely can't. If salvation is once and for all, if salvation is once and always saved, there's no reason to encourage the Hebrew writers to continue to hold to Christ. There's nothing they can do to fall short. There's no need to make that plea of repentance. The reality is, there is. There is a process of accepting that gift which is already given. The works of God have already been done. The Savior was put on the cross. The scriptures were fulfilled, that atrocity that needed to take place, that a blood sacrifice be made for you is done. And that price has been paid. There is nothing else to come. So if we don't believe in Christ, if we don't accept God's plan of salvation, if we aren't, if we aren't convinced the whole of man that is the entirety of who I am, the meaning of life, the purpose of my being here. I don't believe that it is to serve God and keep his commandments. That is the whole of man. To fear God and keep his commandments. That is to have reverence for him, but to serve him and keep his commandments. That's not the entirety of my purpose, and I'm not convinced of it. There's nothing else to come. There's, there's no other hope. That's it. So we have to be assured of it. And we have to continue to grow and develop. And we have to hold tight to that. So what is this plan that we ascribe that, um, that God has laid out and is of necessity? We are fond of, of quoting... Um, let me get there. I believe it's Romans 10 I want. Sorry, I'm ad-libbing. Yeah, let's go to Romans 10. If you have your Bibles, bear with me for two or three moments. Romans 10. very first verse says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer for God or for Israel, to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Verse 3, For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. They haven't fulfilled that of which they should do. Starting in verse 10 then, For the heart, for with the heart, 
Let me back up. Verse 8. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth Jesus Christ, that is a necessity. And believe in thy heart that God hath raised him from the dead, that is a necessity. Thou shalt be saved, for it is with the heart that man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. It is assured in those two verses alone, and we can back those up substantially from others, that faith is necessary, belief is necessary. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Um, that confession has to be made. Go back to Acts. I know we over... I don't know if that's appropriate to use God's word in that way, but... We use this abundantly. I shouldn't say we overuse it. Acts chapter 2. We understand this is the day of Pentecost. Preacher is... Preacher. Peter the preacher is, um, is making that, um, that good speech and the other apostles to all those in attendance. Upwards of, who knows, maybe hundreds of thousands or... Over a million individuals, possibly, that, that could have been there because we're told of all they were there of all nations and they heard these things in their own voice. There were miraculous things happening, but they were preached to Christ. And having recognized that, as Peter said, you put the, the, you put the Savior on the cross, you crucified the hope. Verse 38, oh, 37. When they heard this, they heard Christ preach. They heard what, what they had done. They had crucified the Savior. This Jesus was the Son of God. They believed it because in verse 37 they said, What shall we do? Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? We read a moment ago that belief was necessary. We read that confession was necessary. Peter says, repent. Repentance is necessary. Whatever it is that's keeping me from God, I have to, to turn from that and do a 180. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. We can ignore it. We can pretend it's not there. We can try to convolute it and change it to something else. But the apostle on the day that the, the crowd cried out and said, what do we do now? Repent of what you've done. You put the Savior on the cross. <coughs> and be baptized for the remission of sins. Not to show the world that you believe. Not, not, not to impress anybody else that is here in attendance. But for the remission of sins. I'm going to continue to preach on if I don't put that down. All right. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We have a necessity. If we're going to accept the gift, if we're going to accept the grace that is available to us through the great high priest who made that sacrifice once and all, we have to hear God's word. And having heard it, we have to believe it. Having believed it, we have to be willing to repent of those things that are separating that, us from him. That could be as simple as the fact that up until now, I haven't accepted that. I haven't fully understood it. Or I have understood it, but I just haven't made the application yet. It could be that simple piece of rebellion that I need to repent of. Or it could be more egregious than that. I don't know. But whatever is keeping you from God and being righteous in his eyes, you need to do a 180 and repent of those things. 
and turn from them. Then we have to be willing to be we have to be willing to confess his name before men, uh, just as the Ethiopian eunuch did. We have to be willing to be baptized for the remission of sins, and then we also always point out and make the case that having done those things, we have to continue to live faithful. We have to continue to grow and mature and develop in Him. If there's anybody here tonight that needs to put on Christ, that needs to accept these things, um, if there are any here that have accepted those things, but you feel deficient, you feel like you have fallen short, and you're not in a right relationship with your Lord, if that's of private nature, you can repent of those things, you can pray unto Him, and if you need help and support your brothers and sisters, that's one of the blessings we have in Christ. We're here to, uh, to help one another. We're here to lift one another up and share one another's burdens, and that's what that means. So we can help anyone in any way who needs to respond to the Lord's invitation. Please come forward as we stand and sing. I can